Uh, open in front of you, particularly these verses 17 to 23 this morning. So we think together today about living for the last day. Living for the last day. This year's Commonwealth Games in Birmingham have been uh, some of the most successful ever for athletes from Northern Ireland who have won 18 medals between them. Okay, we're a long way off the nearly 200 won by each of England and Australia. But for our wee country, as we like to call it, we've done pretty well. And of course, no one wins a medal at the Commonwealth Games or the Olympic Games without tremendous amounts of dedication and sacrifice and hard work. In fact, Olympic winning athletes or medal winning athletes, they they tend to live very differently from most other people. If you met a Commonwealth Games winning athlete, but you didn't know who they were or what you did, and you started asking them questions like, what time do you get up in the morning? Um, What are your favorite foods to eat during the week? How many times a week do you go for a swim or do you go to the gym? Uh, If you you saw their weekly diet or you heard the answers to these questions, you'd be thinking, why do they live like this? All that working out, early nights and early starts, never ever taking a trip to McDonald's or drinking a Coke. Why would you live like that? And they would tell you, it's because there's a time in the future that I am looking forward to and working towards. There is a day coming that I am preparing for. I'm living my life now with that day in mind. Well, as Jude begins to draw his letter to a close, having spent a lot of time describing, describing the lifestyle of imposters who have come into the church, he is now going to turn to true believers in the church. And he reminds us that we also are to live our lives now with a day in the future in mind. Jude sets up a strong contrast here between the lives of true believers and the lives of imposters. He says in verse 15, which we thought about last week, he says that imposters will face judgment for all the deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And he keeps repeating that word ungodly over and over again. And we saw last week that that word ungodly means that whether or not you claim to believe in God, you live life as if there is no God to answer to. That you, you live your life making excuses to live however you like, however you please. But then in verse 20, which we'll get to shortly, Jude turns to the Christians And he says, here's how you're to live. And his key message is that unlike the imposters who live as though there is no judgment and no Jesus coming back, true believers are to live in exactly the opposite way. We're to live our lives every day with the last day in mind. And that may mean, it will mean, that sometimes Christians look very odd. Just like those dedicated Commonwealth athletes People might question, why do you live like that? Why do you talk like that? Why don't you go here or do this or do that or say that? Why do you go to church not just once but twice on the Lord's Day? Well, the answer is ultimately because we are living for the last day, the return of Jesus Christ. And that fact influences and directs our whole lives. 
So a few things to bear in mind if we're living for the last day. First of all today, the warning we must remember. The warning we must remember if we're living for the last day. Look at verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. What Jude's saying here is we must not be surprised by the presence of the kinds of people we've been thinking about for most of this letter. We've always known they will be coming. Last week we saw how Jude quoted from the prophecy of Enoch in verse 14. Enoch, one of the Old Testament patriarchs, predicted the same thing that many of the Old Testament prophets predicted. And now Jude says as well, the apostles, the men personally sent out by Jesus Christ himself, the leaders of the New Testament era, they've warned us about the same things. And the word scoffers that he uses here is very rare. It only appears in Jude and also in Second Peter. I've mentioned Second Peter a few times as we've studied Jude. Uh, the two books are very similar, very similar language. Uh, and scoffer is really another word for mocker. Uh, someone who doesn't take you seriously. Uh, you warn them, you try to persuade them about something, but they just treat it like a joke. And to their shame, that's what these imposters in the church were doing. Judgment, hell, come on. That, that's, that's a bit old-fashioned now. That's, that's for primitive people. We're, we've moved far beyond that. We have knowledge that you don't know anything about. We understand things in such a way that we don't need to live like that, believing in those things. And after all, do you not believe in grace? We can live however we like because we're living in the era of grace. And they scoff at the idea of sin and judgment. And Jude says, remember, the apostles said this would happen. And it fits with warnings that we find elsewhere in the New Testament from the teaching of Jesus or from the apostle Paul. Paul, for example, when he was saying his goodbyes to the Ephesus elders, Acts chapter 20, verse 29 Paul says to the the Ephesus elders, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, twisted things, scoffers, false teachers. Therefore, Paul says, be alert. So Jude's building his case here. He says this is something that Enoch spoke about way back In the earliest days of human uh, history, something that the Old Testament prophets spoke about, it's something that the New Testament apostles have spoken about. We are to remember, we are to be on guard against scoffers. And notice when exactly this is predicted to happen, verse 18. They said to you, the apostles did, in the last time there will be scoffers. In the last time. And you see language like that elsewhere in the New Testament, last days or these last times. Those are all New Testament descriptions of the same thing, the days before the return of Jesus. And some Christians waste an awful lot of time debating amongst themselves, when are the last days coming? When will we know that they've arrived? 
Well, the answer couldn't be clearer from the New Testament, friends. We are already living in the last days. The last days began the moment that Jesus ascended into heaven. They will come to an end when Jesus descends back down to earth. The whole time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming is the last days. You might think, well, that's been a long time. That's 2,000 years and counting. The last days might seem like they're lasting a long time to us. But that's what they're called in Scripture. That's what they are. And that's the logic of what Judah's saying here, that they've already begun. He says, the imposters that you're dealing with are the people that the apostles warned us. Scoffers who would come in the last times. And so the logic of what Judah's saying there is, we're in the last times. The presence of imposters and false teachers in parts of the church is part of the evidence that we're in the last times. We might think that the world has been getting worse and worse, that it's worse now than it's ever been. And depending on how you measure it in some ways, it is. But the reality is that the kinds of crises and catastrophes and awful sinful behavior that we're seeing in our world today, it's been happening ever since the last days of Jesus began. Wars, diseases, famines, plagues, and false teaching. All things that Jesus and his apostles said would be in our world in the last days. So we're to remember this warning. But as much as scoffers are a threat to the church, friends, again, there's also encouragement to take from this. Because God's word has us well warned about it. God has already told us that this will happen. God is sovereign. He's in control. He has provided us with all that we need to stand against scoffers. He's not surprised that scoffers have come. To be forewarned is to be forearmed, so the saying goes. And that's what the church is today. We have been forewarned, been warned in advance about these false teachers. And so we are forearmed against them. This is all part of the schemes of Satan, of course, attacking the church and seeking to undermine the church. He's a dangerous enemy, but he's a very unoriginal enemy. He's been attacking the church in the same way for thousands of years. And so today, when people would mock you for your claims that there is a heaven and there is a hell, that all of us are sinners who will be judged for our sins, that sexuality isn't what should define anyone's whole life and that sexual behavior is something we are entirely able to choose, that the Bible is entirely true, that Jesus Christ really lived, really died, really rose again. When people scoff at these things, friends, don't be surprised and be ready to stand your ground and live with the last day in mind, the day when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead when scoffers will face the punishment that their sins deserve. Meanwhile, Christ's people will be told, well done, good and faithful servant, for standing your ground, holding fast to the truth, not being ashamed of my name. And so we're not to be surprised by scoffers, but we're to be encouraged that God has us fully prepared for them. And it's also a reason, friends, why we need to know God's word and pay attention to it. That's part of this warning as well. Notice he says, we must remember. He says, you must remember, verse 17. 
And the word remember often in the Bible, it's not to do with just, you know, don't forget. As in we would say, you know, don't forget to buy milk or something like that. But to remember is to act upon something. Exodus 2.24 says that God remembered the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. As he saw his people in slavery in Egypt, God remembered his promises. It doesn't mean he had forgotten them. It means that he was now going to act upon them. And so he calls Moses and so, and so forth and brings his people out of Egypt. And similarly here, Judah is telling us, remember God's word and act according to what it says. That's why we need to know it and study it and pay attention to it. So that we're on our guard and we're able to deal with imposters. The warning we must remember. Secondly, as we think about living for the last day, the priorities that we must keep. The priorities that we must keep. Uh, Notice how Jude describes these scoffers. Verse 19. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit. You're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian. And not have the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 9. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ. Does not belong to him. Contrary to what some of our professing fellow Christians believe in other churches, the Holy Spirit is not something that you get later in your Christian life. It's not that he comes along and suddenly with a great dramatic outburst of power, you suddenly realize I am full of the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You're only a Christian because the Holy Spirit has birthed new life in you. He has produced life where there was spiritual death before. If it's, it's the Holy Spirit who produces love for the Lord Jesus Christ in us. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us an appetite to know and to study and to understand the word of God, the Bible. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us a hatred for our sin and a desire to repent of it. And Jude says these people don't have the Holy Spirit. They're not true believers at all, these false teachers. And because of that, they're not led by the Spirit. He says there in verse 19 uh, that, they are, um, that they are worldly people, the ESV has. Some of your translations will have, they follow their own natural instincts. They do what comes naturally to sinful people. The mark of being a Christian is that increasingly we do what doesn't come naturally to human beings. We do what we are led to do by the Holy Spirit. As well as that, he says, these unbelievers cause divisions or splits. These people divide the church. They cause cliques and factions in the church. Because people have to take sides. Do we go with what the false teachers are saying? Or do we go with what the apostles were saying? And so the church can be split. But notice the contrast then in verse 20. This is what the false teachers are like. But then verse 20. But you, beloved... And again, verse 17, but you must remember, beloved. And so Jude here very strongly, friends, is emphasizing in the original language the contrast that there should be between the scoffers and the true believers. Here's what they're like. Now let me tell you what you should be like, what your priorities should be as you live for the last day. And so verse 20, if you look at it, but you, beloved, Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, 
Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Excuse me. The key line there is keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the, the main command, if you like, here that he's giving them. And then, if you like, like little hooks hanging underneath that command, there are three other things that he says. Really, how we are to do this. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, the question is, how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Jude says, by building ourselves up on our most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, and waiting patiently for the Lord Jesus. That's how we keep ourselves in the love of God. So let's think about each of those for a moment. Building yourselves up on our most holy faith, first of all, he says. Paul uses that same picture, Ephesians 2 verse 20. He says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. And so the picture there, friends, is very much a corporate one. That we keep ourselves in the love of God by being built up together in our Christian faith. And there's an awful tendency, I don't know why it came in maybe in the last 10, 20 years, uh, and certainly in Northern Ireland evangelical culture, to individualize the Christian experience. So you get a whole plethora of devotional books and all kinds of other books, and it's all about your individual experience of Christian faith. And of course we need that. And we all need to have our own, uh, our own uh, relationship with God. But Judas speaking here to the church. To all God's people together. There are not to be lone ranger Christians. The Christian life is not about me listening to a sermon. And then going off by myself for the rest of the week. Living however I like. He's talking here about being built up in the Christian faith. As the church. As we meet together. As we receive the word together, as we receive the sacraments together, as we enjoy fellowship together, as we sing together. All of those things are part of our being built up in the faith. And if we try to live our Christian lives without those things, we will quickly flounder. Notice this is the opposite again of what the scoffers do. They divide. They cause divisions. They're all about the personal individual experience. So that they can justify living however they like. The true Christian he says. Is marked by a desire to be built up. By the word. By fellowship. By gathering with God's people. So that's the first way that we keep ourselves in the love of God. Secondly he says by praying in the Holy Spirit. Is another way that we keep ourselves in the love of God. Again verse 20. You might wonder well what does praying in the Holy Spirit mean? Well, it's not some mystical, mysterious thing, friends. It's just the day-to-day, regular, for want of a better word, ordinary prayer life of Christians and the church. And again, the key to understanding Jude here is to see the contrast with the scoffers. They're devoid of the Spirit, and so they're led by their own natural desires into whatever they want to say or do or behave. The Christian, by contrast, is led by the Spirit in every aspect of life, including prayer. The Holy Spirit prompts us to pray. The Holy Spirit helps us to pray. 
The Holy Spirit leads us to the kinds of things we should be praying about. Salvation of the lost. The building up of the church in the ways that we've just mentioned. Repentance of our sin. When you sense any kind of desire, either in the church prayer meetings or in your own prayer time at home, when you sense any kind of urge or desire to pray for those things, don't ignore that. That's the Holy Spirit leading you in prayer. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, I will pray in the Spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. And so it's not about sitting there just sort of waiting for the emotions to sweep you away. The Holy Spirit fills every part of us, including our minds. He directs our thoughts and our words and our prayers. Some of you are more full of the Holy Spirit than you realize. For whatever reason, in Reformed circles, often we don't really talk about being full of the Spirit. But some of you are more full of the Holy Spirit than you might think. It's not just something... Uh, For the more charismatic Christians in the world, the more exuberant, uh, emotional Christians, it's, it's, it's regular prayer with God's people, in our families, by ourselves. It's the Christians who most regularly pray in the seemingly ordinary, daily, run of the mill ways that are full of the Holy Spirit. And so don't deny an, don't deny yourself an opportunity to pray when the Spirit is prompting you to do so. That's part of the way that we keep ourselves in the love of God. Part of our relationship with God. He speaks to us in his word. We speak to him in prayer. And in so doing we keep that love of God burning in our hearts. Then the last way that we keep ourselves in the love of God. He says is as we are waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's uh, verse uh, 20, Waiting for the mercy of of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That word waiting, it's an ordinary enough word in the New Testament, but it's often used in the sense of waiting for the return of Jesus. Jesus said in Luke 12, 12, verse 36, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. We're to be ready and waiting and expecting the coming of Jesus. We're We're to think about it. We're to live our present lives now in light of the last day to come. And so it doesn't mean just sitting on our hands. There are things that we're to be doing if we're waiting. Some of you maybe like those books or films or TV shows, the period dramas, where there's a grand house with a rich family and there's servants serving them. And sometimes perhaps the family is away. Well, what do the servants do? Do they, do they suddenly begin treating the house like it's their own? They just you know, start jumping up and down on the sofa or get, inviting in all their friends for a party? No, in fact, the most devoted servants will use the time when the family is away to make sure that the house is absolutely at its best, to get the house even more presentable, to have it ready for when the Lord of the manor returns. They're waiting, but they're busy. And again, you see the contrast with the imposters. They're not waiting. They're just living however they please. They don't believe in the return of Christ or they don't believe it matters. We're not to be like that. We're to be waiting eagerly and expectantly for the mercy of Jesus. That declaration of salvation that will usher us into eternal life. So 
So how do we keep ourselves in God's love? We build ourselves up in our faith. We pray. We wait. But you might be wondering, well, why does Jude say that we keep ourselves? Isn't it true that God keeps us? And indeed, that's what Jude said at the beginning of the letter. Verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. So Jude, at the beginning of the letter, said that God keeps us. Now he says we need to keep ourselves. Well, the scripture emphasizes from beginning to end, of course, friends, that God is absolutely sovereign in our salvation. He has planned it. He has already predestined it. Once he has saved us, he will keep us. Jesus says, I will lose none of those that the Father has given to me. None can be snatched out of my hand. God keeps us. But the New Testament also makes clear that one of the signs that we really are saved is that we will have that spirit-given desire to keep ourselves in God's love, to keep ourselves going in our study of God's word, in our gathering with God's people, in our praying in the spirit. That servant of the house is a servant of the master. The master, in a sense, owns him. Back in the ancient world, the master would literally purchase the slave or the servant. But the evidence that that servant loves the master is that they serve them. They conduct themselves uh, in an honourable way toward the master. They don't serve some other master. They serve the master that owns them and has kept them. And so Jude urges us, friends, commands us, keep yourselves in God's love, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, waiting for the return of Jesus. The warning we must remember, the priorities we must keep. And thirdly and finally, if we are living for the last day, the mercy we must offer. The mercy we must offer. Verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Jude doesn't actually tell his readers to do anything about the imposters. Of course, the New Testament speaks elsewhere about the place of church discipline and what has to be done if someone refuses to repent of false teaching or any other kind of sin. But there's a sense in which we, we leave the imposters in God's hands. If they won't repent, they're for God to deal with. But Jude does urge his readers to deal graciously and patiently with anyone who has been influenced or led astray by these false teachers. It's very easy for Christians, including church leaders, to just sort of become dismissive or hard-hearted or even angry with people who are genuinely confused in their doctrine or in their beliefs or in their grasp of the gospel. And sadly in Northern Ireland, the church sometimes has this reputation of being unkind and judgmental of people who simply are, have been confused, who have been manipulated, who need guidance. People who perhaps know no better than what they've been taught. And so notice the instructions that Jude gives us here for how to minister to such people. He says in verse 22, first of all, have mercy on those who doubt. Here's someone who says to you, for example, I know Jesus said he's the good shepherd and whoever comes to him will never be snatched away, but I just wonder if I've messed up too much, too many times. 
Maybe Jesus just doesn't love me anymore. Or maybe someone says to you, I just don't know whether I can believe the whole Bible. I mean, I believe the bits about Jesus living and dying and rising again, but it's other bits and pieces, I, I just don't know if I can believe it. Some bits of the Bible, do they really matter as much as the others? Can we trust it? Or someone says, I'm a Christian, I've, I've asked Jesus to forgive me for my sins, but there's one particular sin that I just can't get rid of. And to be honest, sometimes I'm not even sure if, if I want to, or maybe, maybe God's okay with me, you know, following Jesus, but this, this other thing's still going on. How do we respond to those kinds of things, friends? Are we patient? Are we gentle? Are we willing to perhaps meet with that person, talk to that person, open up the Bible? Maybe a, gen- a regular Bible study with those, per- those people to help them to, to see more clearly the truth of God's word and to grow in their understanding of it. That's not just something that pastors should be doing, although I'm always willing to do that with anyone who needs to. But that's something that if, you're, if you've been a Christian for many, many years, if, you're, if you've matured in your faith, if you have a grasp of these things, then you should be able to do that with people as they come to you with these questions. We're certainly not to just sort of give them a bit of a telling off and say, oh, come on. If you're saved, you're saved. What are you worried about? Or of course you can understand the whole Bible. Don't be daft. It says, no, that's, that's not to be our attitude. Have mercy on those who doubt. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.25, we're to correct our opponents with gentleness. Now it's true that some people are just sadly out to make trouble. Some people are deceptive. Some people are the kinds of imposters that Judah has been describing in this letter. And we need discernment to see that we're not just being strung along or people aren't just making excuses for their sin. But it's also true, friends, that some people will have been taken in by imposters. And they just lack understanding. They have a lack of assurance. They have mixed up beliefs. And Jude says to such people, show mercy. Show mercy. He says as well in verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Undoubtedly, he has the fire of judgment in mind there. You imagine if a little child or someone you loved was right on the edge of a fire, a fireplace, about to head into the flames. What do you do? You just grab them. You get, them, get your hands on them as fast as you can and drag them back. And Jude says it may be that your witness and your teaching and your, your speaking to them, that's, that's what God uses to snatch them as it were out of the fire before it's too late. It's never too late for someone as long as they have breath in their body. Lastly, he says to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. What he's saying there is that as much as we want to come alongside people who are living in sin, we have to be, we have to be careful as we do that. There has to be a holy fear in us as we do that, that we not begin excusing sin ourselves or even get caught up in, that, in their particular sin ourselves. The language is very graphic here. He's maybe got Zechariah 3 verse 4 in mind, which we read earlier when he says about the garment stained by flesh. Uh, He's speaking there, of course, about ritual purity before God, something that was very important in Old Testament worship. There wasn't to be any impurity or imperfection. Uh, You remember how the priests were to be washed and cleansed and sacrifices were to be perfect and so on. 
The word garment there is the item of clothing that would be worn closest to the skin in Jude's day. Uh, the, the, the clothing most likely to get dirty. And so he's warning us, even as you try to help people caught up in sin and show mercy to them, do it fearfully. Do it carefully. Don't start excusing sin. Don't start getting tempted into that sin yourself. Hate the sin, even as you show concern for the sinner. And that's what the Lord Jesus did, isn't it? Jesus never excused sin. Jesus preached repentance, but he showed mercy. He showed grace and love to sinners. You think of the woman caught in adultery, John 8 verse 11. Jesus refused to allow anyone to stone her to death. But what did he say to her? Go and sin no more. Get rid of your sin. There's Zacchaeus as well, that greedy tax collector. Jesus didn't excuse Zacchaeus' sin. He came to his house. He showed concern for him. And as a result of the love of Jesus, Zacchaeus was compelled to change his ways. And so here's the last aspect, friends, of living for the last day. Show mercy, show Christ-like love to those deceived by sin. Sometimes that will be very challenging. It's going to cost us time. It's going to cost us effort. It might cost us comfort. But whatever mercy we show to others is a drop in the ocean compared to the mercy that Jesus has provided for us. He's given us what we didn't deserve. He's taken the punishment that our sins deserved on himself on the cross. That's our most holy faith that Jude mentions in verse 20. That's what we believe. That we have been shown incredible, unquantifiable mercy and grace. That's what our whole lives as Christians, our existence as a church is all about. Letting people know that they can be shown grace and mercy. That they can receive what they don't deserve. And if we are truly living for the last day, the day when we will see Jesus and be welcomed into his presence and enjoy his kingdom forever, then we will have a constant desire to see other people come to know him as well, to be snatched from the fire, to receive mercy. The last day is coming soon. And so let's remember the warnings that we've been given. Scoffers will come. Let's remember the priorities we must keep. Build ourselves up. Pray in the Spirit. Wait for the Lord. And let's remember the mercy we must offer to those who doubt. Those who are deceived and living in sin. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That leads to eternal life. Amen.